HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, we are ready for Acts 17, and we are on the second journey of Paul and Silas. Uh, They've picked up Timothy and Luke, and um, we actually are just leaving Luke behind. Um, They came to Macedonia in uh, chapter 16, were led there by the Spirit, and um, they pick up Luke in, uh, not Berea, but in um, Troas, and then they um, leave him in Philippi, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they encouraged them and departed, which is the last verse of uh, chapter 16. So we're ready for the next phase of, uh, of the journey. Yeah, so we'll go ahead and pick up in chapter 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we're reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom... He went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, along with a a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And they send them away by night in the next verse to Berea. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, Thessalonica, if I remember correctly, is the capital city of Macedonia. That's uh, the the region, kind of modern-day Greece, where they're traveling. And Paul, by this point, has a a custom. (laughs) If you go to a city, the first place you go is the Jewish synagogue where they would assemble on the Sabbath day. And so they, he goes in, and uh, for three of those Sabbath days, I like what it says here, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Again, he's going to Jews, people who are already religious, who are devout to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's showing them from their own scriptures and reasoning with them and saying, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one from God that you've been waiting for. And this is what he's been doing on the first journey and other places. But here in Thessalonica, he's going to have a pretty similar reaction as he's had from some of the other churches on the first journey. Um, And uh, he is telling them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And a lot of people are being converted, but then who opposes them? Yeah, the Jews are vehemently opposing what Paul is doing here. Um, just one other comment, too, on this reasoning from the scriptures. It is kind of cool as you like look back on the Old Testament scriptures and think about like 
what scriptures would Paul have been using? Uh, when we read Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, specifically chapter 53, um, that clearly was talking about the Christ. And so it's just cool to think back on all those Old Testament passages that Paul might have been using to help convince people that Jesus was the Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in verse 3, some are persuaded, it tells us, uh, joining Paul and Silas. And it's really interesting that there's this large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women also mm-hmm. join in in following Jesus and following this movement. Uh, but as Stephen was saying, there are some Jews there that are jealous and they take some of these wicked men um, from the marketplace and they form this mob and they set the whole city in an uproar. It's kind of like they know they have to find the the rabble, kind of the, the wicked guys to rabble rousers. stir them up. Yeah. And so they drag out uh, Jason and some of the brothers. And I love the way the ESV puts this in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down. I much prefer that translation. Have come here also. Yeah, that's much better. Yeah, and so they're saying that they've upset the world. And this just is a testament to the spread of Christianity in the first century. That by this point, it's like, they're here too. You know, they, they know that Christianity has been spreading everywhere. And uh, now they're here and upsetting things. And it's also interesting that they try to get them by saying they're kind of starting a revolution. They say they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's so important to see that the gospel going out into the world is fundamentally, it's not just a kind of like a nice way of believing things or like, oh, you'll make your life better. It's like, no, like this is a a change in reality that there is a new king. And, of course, people who are like Romans are thinking, wait, are you saying that there's someone a king besides Caesar? Like, what are, you, what are you saying here? I can see where this would sound like a political rebellion to people who are not familiar with the, the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, and if he's reasoning from the scriptures, it's natural that talking about Jesus being a descendant of David, the king, taking a right to his throneship... Some of that idea of King Jesus would have certainly been going around. Mm-hmm, that's right. And I mean, this is the same thing they said about Jesus himself. Right. Uh, they take him to Pilate, and Pilate's like, hey, are you a king? And he's like, you've said that I'm a king, <laughs> but my kingdom's not of this world. Jesus is very clear about that. If he says, if it was, my servants would have been fighting. Right. These people are not going to town and, you know, getting a militia going. And like, you know, they're, they're going and converting people to King Jesus so that they will live in submission to his ways and bring more people to him. And so the people are disturbed. Um, they do kind of find them. They take money from Jason and the others, and they let them go. And then to keep further things from happening, they send them away at night as Paul and Silas kind of escape uh, to the next city. But what's going to be interesting in this chapter is we're going to see three different reactions to the gospel. Now, there mm-hmm. are some favorable reactions in Thessalonica, but largely it's a negative reaction. Yeah. They're chased off into the next city, and uh, we'll also see some more from the Thessalonians in the next city, too. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yep. So that gets us to the city of Berea, which is where they escaped to. Let's read verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, so like Stephen said, they're sent away by night. Paul and Silas are. They get there. Where do they go? Straight to the synagogue. You know, that's the synagogue of the Jews, as is their custom. And there's a note given about these people in Berea. Um, And it's a note that compares them to the Thessalonians. actually. It says Mm -hmm. they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Meaning, you know, they're willing to listen. They're, They're willing to reason and hear it out. Um, I, the NIV says there that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. It kind of seemed like these these people in Thessalonica were just ready to fight, you know, kind of kind of ready to just um, jump down people's throats. But these people were willing to hear them out, and they received the word with great eagerness. Notice the order here: receive the word with great eagerness, examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so, and then people believe, along with prominent Greek women and men. That order is really important. When we go to hear somebody deliver the word of God, be excited. That's great. God's word is being delivered and proclaimed. Praise God for that. But what's the next step? Do do you just end it there and go, well, if they're claiming they're from God and their message is from God, then it must be. Right. No, it doesn't end there. You examine the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Uh, That is the order that it goes in. And as a result... You can believe. You can understand. You can follow whatever the teaching was if you can truly see that it was from God through the scriptures. Mm-hmm. That's right. And this is going to be really important in comparing the reactions of these three cities. In Thessalonica, they largely reject because of the jealousy. You know, They don't want the power taken away from them, just like the Jews did in the time of Jesus. Uh, but in Berea, they're going to be open-minded but not so open-minded that they don't check stuff out. Uh, they're, they're reasonable. They're listening and they're checking. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, but they're still checking him against Scripture and saying, is that right? Is what he's saying matching up with what we know already to be the Word of God? And as we're going to see in just a minute, in Athens, they're just about something new. <laughs> they're, they're, they'll accept just about anything. Like, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Um, and so just seeing these different reactions helps us in our approach to scripture. It's easy for us to get set in our ways of like, well, I grew up believing this. My parents believe this. The people around me believe this. I'm, I'm good. I don't need anything new. Um, and that's not a good mindset to have. We are all fallible. We could be wrong. Uh, the people who taught us could be wrong. And so we have to be open-minded enough to not just be prejudiced against any new teaching that comes our way. On the other extreme, though, we need to not be so open-minded that like, oh, whatever, man, you know, like preach it round or flat, black or white, like it doesn't matter. Um, And that's kind of where they are in Athens. But these people in Berea are are kind of the perfect middle of that. The right balance is they listened with eagerness, but then they checked the scriptures. And that's why we all need to be good students of the word, mm-hmm. is any preacher can be wrong. Any group of people following the Lord can be wrong and will be wrong at different points. And so if we're people of the book and we're teachable, we're humble, 
that will give us the keys that we need to get to truth. Because, again, there's all different kinds of teachings going around, but we need to examine each teaching and measure it against the truth of God's word. And that's the best way to arrive at at the right conclusion. Yes, amen. Um, and that's a huge focus in Scripture. Um, it'll be something that, that Paul talks at length about in First and Second Timothy. Um, but looking at, at verse 13, you know, for every good thing in Acts, there's sometimes a discouraging things. Um, but in verse 13, these same people from Thessalonica, they find out that this word of God is being proclaimed by Paul in Berea, and they come all the way from Thessalonica uh, to to stir up the crowds against Paul and Silas and Timothy there. Um, so, man, these are some adamant um, persecutors, right? And that's that's really the idea of persecuting, right? It's like going actively to persecute, and they physically are actively going to do that even into the next town. Well, it's kind of like the Jews chasing Paul from Iconium to Lystra a couple chapters ago, um, that Paul used to pursue Christians all the way up to Damascus. That's where right. he was converted. And now the Jews are chasing Paul again uh, from city to city. Yeah, and I don't know, just looking at a map, roughly 15 miles, 20 miles, something like that. Uh, it's yeah. it's not a short distance. When though. you're walking, that's a long way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So they're, they're willing to go as far as they can to do this persecuting. Yeah. By the way, we didn't mention this when they left Thessalonica, but the persecution that was stirred up there, um, Paul is going to write 1 Thessalonians probably while he's here at Berea. I mean, pretty, he may not be in Athens, actually, when he writes 1 Thessalonians, but pretty soon, I mean, he is going to feel torn away from those young Christians in a place of persecution. So yeah. this is one of the first places in the book of Acts that we start to be able to insert the letters. And it's really a cool exercise to go through and to use the evidence that we have um, to say, hey, like Paul would have been about here when he wrote this letter. And so First and Second Thessalonians um, are likely written during Acts 17 at some point. Again, we can't always be 100% sure like exactly where it is, but some of them we can be like, yeah, it was like right in this time frame. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, as soon as the Thessalonians get there to Berea, and start agitating and stirring up the crowds, the brethren send Paul uh, out as far as the sea. Um, but Silas and Timothy, they're going to stay there in Berea. Um, and Paul is brought as far as Athens, and he's receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. Um, and so they leave. So I don't think it was an ideal situation that they stayed in Berea, but for whatever reason that happened, and then he wants them to come with him. But that brings us to verse 16. Um, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. And uh, this will be Paul at Athens. Um, so it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, What would this idol babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there, they used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So... Athens, again, is going to have a very different reaction. Of course, this is like the center of Greek philosophy and thought. I mean, this is um, 
a city that is rich in a history of culture and religion and philosophy. And so he comes to Athens. I mean, and he gets there. And the first thing is he's provoked. His spirit is provoked within him when he sees that the city is full of idols. Mm -hmm. I just appreciate Paul that he comes there and he's not like, oh, well, that's interesting. He's like, he's moved in his spirit. I think in a, he's frustrated. He, he sees such a need for the truth in this city because it's just so full of idols. I mean, we all have that kind of spirit when we see things that are not true all around us. And so he reasons in the synagogues with the Jews, the devout persons, um, and in the marketplace every day, which is kind of cool. We get a little more window into the types of reaching out that Paul was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, just whoever happened to be in the marketplace, he's doing that. And we learned a little bit about some of the different philosophies there. In verse 18, um, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the Epicureans were the followers of a philosopher named Epicurus. Um, and their motto was more along the idea of like, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Um, it is a pleasure-seeking thing. The best way to live your life is to get as much pleasure as possible before you die and can't get pleasure anymore. That's the measure of a full life. And by the way, doesn't that sound like some teaching that we hear out in the world today? It's true. It's true. And so stoicism is kind of the opposite. Is like the best way to live your life is to distance yourself from the pain and pleasure of life is just to kind of live above it all. Um, and so Stoics get kind of a reputation for like, oh, that he's Stoic. Might be a way of saying, oh, well, he's kind of quiet or reserved. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly what Stoicism is. It's more of the idea of like being removed from pleasure and pain. And actually Stoic philosophy is kind of making a comeback these days as well from what I hear. So these guys have some pretty sharp things to say about Paul, not in a good way either. You know, what what would this idle babbler wish to say? You know, with this guy, he's a smooth talker, or he's at least talking about, uh, acting like he knows what he's talking about. What does this guy wish to say? And others openly recognize th- this is something we've not heard before. Uh, he's a teacher of strange deities. And Luke notes for us, it's because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, which obviously that would be an interesting new thing to people if you'd never heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's right. So uh, Paul is going to take the opportunity here in just a minute to address these people um, because it says that they like learning new things. Um, they enjoy learning these different teachings that come in and out of, of Athens. Um, and of course, Athens being a port city, there would have been a lot of people coming and going through a city like that. People from as far as India or up, up into the England territories. I mean, think about just the vast amount of people that would have been traveling through this one port uh, that could bring all different types of philosophies, theologies, and different things like that. So these people were used to hearing new teachings. Yeah. And, and again, like, I've heard it said this way, you want to be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out. It's <laughs> uh, a sense in which to think of this. And what is going to be interesting, though, is that the Athenians are going to be open-minded to a point. The thing that Luke notes in verse 18 is preaching Jesus and the resurrection is going to be something that is one of the few things that they're actually going to kind of find offensive. And we're going to see that in a minute with the sermon here that they listen to him up until he mentions the idea of someone coming back from the dead. And that is like, nope, not going to listen. I have an interesting quote here um, that's from a book, uh, Immortality and the Resurrection, um, from a 
idea of behind major motifs of biblical thought. And it says this about the resurrection in Greek thought. It says, appearing in Greek thought is a sharp distinction between the body and the soul. The soul was regarded as pure, holy, and immortal. The body as evil, earthly, and corruptible. Man's existence on earth is a living death during which the soul is trapped within the body. The 6th century BC Greek philosophers taught that the soul can be purified from its bodily defects in order to escape from the physical earthly existence, then to return to the realm of pure spirit. In the Platonic tradition, that is, of Plato, uh, the body is regarded as the prison of the soul. Death emancipates the soul. Hmm, that's interesting. So this is really interesting that, again, this would have been Plato, I mean, this stuff would have been present in Athens, I'm sure. And that's why this idea of resurrection was like, no, like, you finally got rid of your body. You're like, why would you want it back? <laughs> you know? And so their opposition to the resurrection is largely based on some of the famous philosophers um, and their opposition to the idea. It's like, oh, well, finally, you can be pure soul, pure spirit. But Jesus got his body back and says, you know, touch my hands, touch my side. Like, physical bodily resurrection is part of the central concept of the gospel. So we'll see that come up here in just a minute as he preaches to the Athenians. Yeah, and let, let's, uh, before Stephen reads that for us, just kind of set the stage again. Like, Paul's going into synagogues all the time. He's kind of got his uh, his sermon, that what we read in Acts chapter 13, that he'll give to Jews. And uh, I guess in Acts chapter 14, we saw him address some Gentiles, but still it's like, how is Paul going to address these people who already seem to be a little bit hostile toward his teaching and what he's thinking? How is Paul going to bring the gospel to people like this? Um, how would you do it? And then let's go ahead and read how Paul does it. Because he's not going to quote the Old Testament. No, scriptures. he's not. Uh, he's going to quote some different things. So let's read. We're in Acts 17, uh, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris 
and others with them. All right, so Paul is in the midst of all these people, um, and one of the first things he said is, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Pretty safe assumption for Paul to make. As oh, he starts on common ground, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm religious, you're religious, yeah. let's start there. Now, obviously, one of the biggest points Paul is going to make is, uh, you all are polytheistic, obviously. You need to be more monotheistic. You need to understand that there's one God. Uh, as verse 16 pointed out, Paul sees the city full of idols, um, a God for everything, yeah. you know, they, Sex god, fertility god, you name a money god, you name it, they had it. Um, and they had all these different things that you could sacrifice to or pray to or whatever have you. Including an altar to the unknown gods. Yeah. Like, well, just in case we missed one, let's make sure that we have, uh, you know, this altar to and one unknown god. And I wonder if Paul, like, cracked a smile when he first saw that. Like, whew, really? Like, an unknown god? Are you kidding me? It's like, wait, I can use that. But yet, yeah, that's exactly right. Yet, he realizes that that's his starting ground. You know, here's this unknown god, and yeah, that's right. They do have an unknown god. They don't know who Yahweh is, the, the god of, of everything, the god of the universe, the creator. That's right. And in verse 24, this would have, the idea of a god who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, like that is a foreign idea to them. Like you just mentioned, their gods are kind of like big humans where we all have different jobs. The the gods have different jobs. This one's in charge of the weather and this one's in charge of the earth or the sea sea and whatever. Um, And so he says, no, it's not like that. I'm going to proclaim a different God. The God I'm proclaiming does not fit into one of these temples that you're worshiping in. Um, he is not. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's not dependent on you. He's not waiting for you to sacrifice to him so he'll send you the rain. He he's independent. He does what he wants. He's Lord of all things. Yeah. And I, I just can't help but think of Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's kind of Paul's point here. You need to understand not only the eternal nature of God, but He is all Creator. He he is not dependent upon you. He's not like you ever use one of those like crank flashlights that if you crank it long enough, the light will then blast, but then you got to put more work in. That's kind of how their gods were. The more you put into that God, the more likely they think it is to work. That's that's not how this God operates at all. He's completely sovereign and completely God himself. Yeah. Doesn't need us. And in verse 26, he is the God of all mankind. He's not a regional God or like the God of this nation or this ethnicity or whatever. He says he made from one man or just really from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And this is such an important concept. And really this is important in our day and age, especially right now with some of the questions we're wrestling with, that every human regardless of background, regardless of color, language, nation, whatever, came from one. God made the ones from whom come every single person that we've ever met. And that's so important. Um, different Bibles will put like made from one blood or from one father or whatever. Like We're all part of the same race at the end of the day. And that's so important to recognize when it comes to how we treat each other is that we're not under different gods or under different things. We were all made 
in the image of the one God who made the one human race. And that gives every individual intrinsic worth and value. Now, these people had strayed far from that one God. Mm -hmm. But Paul is treating them with honor and respect and saying, hey, I see you guys are religious. And you guys need to grope for God and find him. He's not far away from you. I like the way he says this. Um, he, he's determined the allotted boundaries of people's dwelling place, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him or, or grope for him and find him. He's not actually far from us. So he's like, you guys are clearly looking for God. And you've made up some stuff that has maybe some attributes like God, but not like the true God. You, you've missed him. But he's not that far away. You need to keep seeking him. And here's what's interesting. Verse 28, Paul is probably quoting from two different sources. Uh, when he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, this is probably from Epimenides of Crete. I'm not exactly sure who that is, but the people who put the footnotes in say this is probably a reference to one of the poets they would be familiar with. And then for sure, in the next phrase, he says, as even some of your own poets have said, and we do know where this one's from, for we indeed are his offspring. This is from a poem by a guy named Aratus, uh, who was lived about 310 to 245 BC. And it's from a poem, I'm going to butcher this, I think it's Phenomena is the name of the poem. But what's interesting is if you go read this, you can look it up online. This is originally a poem about Zeus. And it's praising Zeus as the creator and like the king of the gods and different things. And in that poem, it says, and we are indeed his offspring, referring to Zeus. And what's interesting is Paul kind of hijacks this poem is like you guys are searching for god like you're searching for him and you have hit on some true things like we are all children of one one being but it ain't zeus (laughs) Uh, we're children of the god of abraham isaac and jacob and so he takes this hymn to zeus and applies the principle and says you're right about the principle but you're wrong about who it is yeah and that's so cool because Paul's kind of first point, as we read in 24 through 26, is the idea of God being the creator. You know, he not only made us, but he gives us times, boundaries, and all that, our habitation. But then this next part is Paul saying, he's not only our creator, but he's our father. Uh, that's And that brings a whole nother kind of idea to God um, as we think about our earthly father, you know, not only creating us, but taking care of us, giving everything that we need, feeling indebted to. That's the same idea with God being our father. Um, And as Paul makes that point in verse 29, he says, seeing ourselves as the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art and the thought, or I like what the ESV says there, the imagination of man. If, If God is really this father creator figure, is he really going to be able to dwell in gold or silver? You know, he's he's much more than that when you understand right. how big our God really is. When I say you've got it backwards, you guys are worshiping things that you've made. When you need to realize that you are the thing that God made. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you're, it's, you're the creature here. Right, exactly. He's the creator. And, and since you're his offspring, you guys recognize that you're the offspring of deity, that you you're you're like your father. Your father um is powerful in these ways but you're worshiping lifeless worthless idols like you're the one who crafted it you're the one who came up with it it's you've got it backwards and so he says listen verse 30 
God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he's commanding everyone to repent. I mean, that's been the message for the Jews, for the Greeks, that for hasn't everybody. Changed. You got to repent. You got to change from your futile ways. And he's because judgment's coming. He says, this God is going to come and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And he's going to do it. Now, again, he's, he's let all of this, he's, he's quoted from the things they have in common. He's used their own poetry, but now he brings it to Jesus. He's going to judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he comes to Jesus. He comes to the resurrection. And this is the point at which you get three yeah. different reactions. Yeah. I, and um, just real quick, too. It, this is such a complete sermon lesson. God is creator. God is father. You need to repent because Jesus rose from the dead. Like that is such a complete, and it's also like, that's very similar to some of the other lessons that Paul's been doing. At the center of it is Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and you need to repent. Yeah. I think that's so cool, and as Stephen said, consistent, and Paul, and just all the apostles or different teachers we read about Max, that's the central message of their teaching, and it should be the central message of our teaching too that's right and just to say i mean in acts 13 we had a sermon recorded that was kind of his typical synagogue sermon this sermon that he gives here in the areopagus is likely kind of his typical gentile sermon if he gets an audience with gentiles he's gonna use a different approach but all of the different approaches lead to jesus that's just a helpful principle for us as we're trying to share the gospel with people if you're talking with someone you're like quoting Bible to them, and, you're like, and they're like, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God, or maybe I don't even believe there is a God. Well, you got to back up. you got to start from a different point and still bring them to Jesus, but you may have to lay some different foundation work. Mm-hmm. And so here, he's not talking with people who believe that Yahweh is the true God. they got a bunch of idols. And so he has to back up and start with, there's one true God, and Jesus is his son. With the Jews, he's like, okay, you guys know the true God. But you need to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it's just interesting. In the same chapter, we've seen Paul take different approaches. And we have to be flexible. Always lead people to Jesus, but be ready to start with where someone is at. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, when, when you start with someone and you deliver this message, you do see kind of three responses normally uh, that we read in 32 through 34. These, these first group of people, they hear about the resurrection of the dead. And the quote Stephen gave for us earlier comes into play here. And they sneer at it, or ESV says they mock it, uh, just kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, dude, you had us until this point, um, but we, we're done. Um, that's that's about as far as you're going to get with us. Um, then you've got the second group of people who say, we'll hear you out again concerning this. You know, we'll hear you more. We're not quite convinced, and I don't think this is a bad place to be. Uh, yeah. they, they need to hear more. This is brand new. You don't always convert somebody in a day. Right. <laughs> uh, they need to think about it. And, and then, then, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then some joined and believed, and he mentions a couple, uh, Dionysius, uh, a woman named Damaris, uh, others with them. And uh, so, again, these three reactions are typical to the gospel. Some people are going to mock, reject, perhaps be hostile. Some are going to just be like, oh, that's interesting. Let, let, let me hear you again about that. I don't know. And some people are going to be like, yes, that is right, and I'm ready to change. And uh, not everyone's going to respond in the same way. And that's not because it was a bad sermon. (laughs) That's just because he's preaching the truth and different people are going to respond different ways. Yeah. So I love this chapter just to kind of lay out different responses to the gospel, um, even here, but between Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, 
these cities serve to kind of represent different philosophies, different responses to the gospel, and I appreciate how it's the same message for all of them in the end. But Paul starts where they're at and brings them to Jesus. Yeah, very cool chapter. Um, Lord willing, next week we'll get into chapter 18, where Paul comes to a city uh, we're pretty familiar with, Corinth. Um, First and Second Corinthians is where we might have heard that word. And uh, we're going to be introduced to two characters that we'll see in other areas of the Bible, other epistles, Priscilla and Aquila. So we'll talk more about them, Lord willing, next week. Yeah, if you guys are enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review. Uh, that will help us to reach more. Um, if you're interested in studying with us, we'd love to sit down with you or get on the phone or Zoom or whatever. Uh, 717-585-0949, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com, or check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.